Revelation 21, we'll pick up in verse 1, first eight verses tonight, and the new heaven and the new earth. And this is part of God's plan. You know, very often when you look at the world today and you think of all the things that are going on and everything that's happened and all the destruction and whether you're a believer in climate change and global warming or disbeliever or whether you think that, you know, our ecological problems are a problem or whether they're not a problem or whether you, you know, are okay with the way the world is or not, uh, all those things don't matter. The fact of the matter is, is that mankind has had a tremendous impact upon our world and it's been, quite a bit of it's been negative. We've done some great things. We've built some wonderful buildings, those kind of things. But we have really not been stewards of this world the way we ought to be. One of the common things that we all kind of struggle with is like, well, I really wish I could have had a, a chance to see it the way God intended it. The millennial reign of Christ solves that part of it. We're, we're going to get to go back to that idyllic environment and then now we find this new heaven and this new earth, which is even better than the one that we currently reside on. So if you've ever had any problems with all of the things, well, that just doesn't thrill me too much, the new one will thrill you. Amen? So God has a plan even for beyond the, this, this makeover that he's going to do on planet earth during the millennial reign. He's going to go beyond that. He's literally going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be nothing like the one that we're currently on, infinitely better. It gives us this beautiful picture of hope. And so as we turn to chapter 21 now in the first verse, let's pray and seek the face of the Lord tonight. Father, we again have come so grateful that you've written the end before it comes, that you've given us an advanced look at these days that are ahead for us, there's still yet future for us tonight, but we are encouraged, we're strengthened. Thank you that your grace abounds even to, to bring to us a, a new way of living that we've never known, uh, a new life that we can't even understand. And so, Father, as citizens of that heavenly kingdom, Lord, that, that kingdom that will come fully and completely, God, we ask that you would enlighten us tonight with your word, Cause it to be rich and full. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here, Revelation 21. Just two more chapters and we wrap this up. And now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. And people always draw attention to this. It's like, okay, surfing's out the window. Deep sea fishing's gone. All those you can look at everything from the glass half empty side, okay? So it does say no more sea. It does seem to indicate that that is speaking of bodies of water, but I'll also tell you it could mean seas of people, as in overcrowding, masses of humanity. In other words, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be so glorious and wonderful that you're not going to be, you know, backed up like we have lots here in L.A. to where, you know, everybody's got their eight square feet that they live in. It won't be like that. You're going to have some room in the new heaven and the new earth. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Uh, now, as we get to that, we'll look at that in detail next week. That's the second half of the chapter, the larger portion of chapter 21. It was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In other words, this new city uh, will be so glorious, it will be resplendent 
in its glory. I love that word, resplendent. As brilliantly and wonderfully decorated as you can possibly imagine. And again, put it into its context. You can use the modern one if you choose. When you think about what God is going to do as he brings this new city into existence, as it descends from heaven, it will be nothing like we have ever seen. One of the wonderful traditions that we have in in our Western way of life, generally speaking, is the bridegroom does not get to see the bride on the wedding day. She's doing something she's never done before. She's being dressed to the nines. All expenses have been thrown out the door. No expenses spared. The dress is this beautiful, radiant dress. Hair is done. Makeup's done. The jewelry's on. It, it, is, it is as if this new city descending is, is for the bride of Christ. We're, we're seeing this as if it is the bride adorned for the husband. It's just gonna, you're going to stand there and go, oh, my glorious. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Can you imagine when the fullness of God's presence is with us as his people? You see, we have in a measure the fullness of the Holy Spirit with us today. But the fullness of the presence of God, so brilliant and wonderful is that now that Scripture declares to us now in the age of grace that no one can look upon God and actually live. His glory would be too much for us in these earthly bodies with our carnal minds. We couldn't possibly handle all that God is. The wonders of His presence. It's the reason that Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock as, as the, in essence, the backside of God's glory passed him by. But in that day, the tabernacle of God will be with men. God will be literally with us in his fullness, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, now we know Christ. We see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. We see partially now, mostly because of our brokenness as human beings. We can't handle the fullness of God, but God has yet to display His fullness to us. We haven't seen it yet. All the wonderful things that God's done in your life, we we have no way of comprehending the goodness of what God will do when he brings this time to pass. And God will wipe away, and here, here comes a, a passage that is so important for us today. With all that's going on in our world, everything, we just, you, you turn on the news and you just sigh. You, you look down the home page of your favorite website and you just one story after another of tragedy heartache, brokenness, death, disease. It's just it's it's our everyday existence. There hasn't there has not been a week this year that we have not buried someone in this church. Not one not one And you you sit there and you think, oh, Lord, 
No more trying to deal with tragedy. And notice what it says. When the fullness of God is with us. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah. And there shall be no more death. Glory. Hallelujah. Nor sorrow. Amen and glory and hallelujah. Nor crying. And just keep going on and on. And there shall be no more pain. Amen. Anybody ready for pain to be a non sequitur in your life? Never ever again to have pain of any kind. The word that's used here is the general kind of pain. It could be mental, physical, emotional, financial, any kind of pain. No more pain, period. For the former things have passed away. You see, some people bemoan heaven. I I find it hard to believe at times, but I, I guess I generally understand it because we have such a limited view with our humanness of what heaven will be like. And it's like, oh, well, we're going to lose that, we're going to lose that, and we're going to lose this, and we're, you know, we're not going to be able to do that. And When I think about what God has told us about heaven, and He says there's going to be no more suffering, and no more death, and no more pain, no more tears, that's good enough for me right there. If I could just have a respite from those things, that would be heaven. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. And I love this little break. It's as if John, as he's sitting there in in his cave on the island of Patmos, and he's been writing these things on on a parchment, as he's been taking down what he's been seeing, it's as if the whole concept of seeing this glimpse of a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem, which he's going to describe next as he sees these things, as if he's gone into a trance. It's like, I can't believe it. And so God shakes his tree. He's like, come on, get back at it, write. These things are faithful and true. This isn't a dream, it's real. Have you ever woken up from a dream and you're going, oh man, I was asleep. Anybody ever do that? You know, I, I do that. I'm like, I'm in some awesome place, or you know, it's you. In mine, it's you. I'm usually fishing, and I've caught some like 800 pound trout or something. They don't even exist in the world, but somehow I hook one, and I'm I'm really, you know, it's on two pound tests, by the way. And I'm, I'm reeling this thing, you know, and I find it, and, I, and then I wake up, and I'm like, oh, it's like it wasn't. I was sleeping. That's what's happening to John. He sees these things, and then all of a sudden God kind of wakes him up, and he says, no, you've got to write these things down. We're not there yet. It's just a vision. And he says, write, for these words are true, and they are faithful. And he said to me, it is done. The judgment of mankind is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. 
Now remember when this is, because people get hung up on this next verse. This is directly after the thousand years have ended. The Spirit of Gog, Magog, has been released. Satan has come out of the pit one last time. So there have been people alive that bent the knee to the enemy. And so he's making a simple differentiation because there's going to be the great white throne judgment. People are going to be judged. And so he's, he's making that one final plea. Look, you don't want to be part. And he does this for us who are alive now. At that time, your choice will have been made. So he's telling us this in light of the glory. It's as if, and I'll get to this in a moment, it's as if, I don't know if you do this, if, you know, we, we kind of gone to almost all online travel booking, but there used to be a time when you actually walked into a travel agency and, and they always had, there were like small books about every kind of vacation you could take and you'd pull one out, you know, and you'd be going through it and they, the, the, the cost of them were always in the back, hidden underneath like some, you know, some advertisement to where you couldn't tell what, the, so you're just going, it's like, yes, yeah, that's awesome, and, you, and I want to do that, and I'm going to do the zip line, and I'm going to go with all, and you get, and it's 10,000 bucks. <laughs> and so here you have in view all of the glory, and then Jesus makes a final reminder, you don't want to miss out on this because you don't have a ticket. But the cowardly. You see, sometimes it's easy for us to focus in on the super sins, the immoral, the murderer, the adulterer, the person bound up in homosexuality, the drunkard. He starts with the cowardly. The person who's too afraid of what other people think to make a decision to love Jesus. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so we make it now to the home stretch. The raptures happen, the judgments, the sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments, all done. The world gathered together against the Lord at Armageddon. He's defeated them. Done. He establishes a thousand year reign. It's over. It's happened. That rod of iron has ruled. That last go at mankind has happened. Satan's released. He has a short period of time, might be a day, we don't know. Some people, without any mindset that we can rationalize ourselves, have chosen to, to go with the enemy. And God says, don't you do it. Because He loves us that much. He always warns us because He loves us, right? God doesn't warn us because He hates us. He's not the cosmic killjoy who sits in heaven. Oh, that's fun. I'll take that away. God always warns us of things that will destroy us ultimately. That's why the, the prophet David spoke so eloquently when he said, sin, though it is pleasurable for a season, the end of it is death. 
You see, there's things that look like, well, I'll just join that team. It's over. It's done. It's happened. Chapter 19 reminded us that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that he should strike the nations. The fierceness of his wrath has been poured out. Satan's now been bound. He's been loosed. And we got to that place to where all of the unrighteous dead, every last person who has ever lived throughout all time, who has said no to faith and yes to walking only in what they can see and what they can feel and what they can touch. No faith has entered into their life because without faith it is impossible to please God. No one gets saved simply because they understood something. If you're saved, you're saved by faith. That faith was given to you as a gift of God, which brings God's grace, His unmerited favor, which saves you from His wrath. That's how it works. It's that simple. It's not complex. Keep the gospel simple. That gospel's gone out, and there are people throughout time, for their varying reasons, have rejected it. They now stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment, which will be the second death. That second death is when God says, after all this time, you made a choice to reject Jesus. But for the faithful, we enter into eternity, into that eternal state. And this is different than what we now call heaven. And it's important to recognize that. God has something better than even what we can understand today, tonight, about heaven. Because it says He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. When we think about these things, it causes us to wonder, you know, sometimes people will ask, well, why are we here? I actually get asked by people, well, when you accept the Lord, how come the Lord doesn't take you home? There's lots of reasons. But I think chief among them is that we bear the good news. We've received it, we've believed it, we're walking in it, God has transformed and changed us, and so we're wandering around the earth telling everybody about the good news, the gospel. We get that opportunity. But when you think about what the church really does and how we function, very often we're a hospital, aren't we? Jesus came to heal the sick and the lame and the blind. So we are a hospital while we're here. We're that place that people can come. Your house is a little triage clinic. People come to you and they say, I've got this going on in my life. Well, you know what? God can heal that, brother. God can touch that, sister. And He wants to. And so in that sense, the church is a hospital. The church is also a school, amen? We're kind of doing some of that tonight, aren't we? We study to show ourselves and approve workmen, rightly dividing the word of truth. There, as 2 Timothy 3.15 reminds us, one of the things we do is we kind of go to school. We learn what it's like to be one of God's kids so that when people see us, they see the difference between us and people without Jesus, and they go, I want to be like that. So the church is a school. The, The church absolutely is a gymnasium. It's a health club. It's a spiritual health club where we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? We're in there pumping iron for Jesus. I'm learning some new things. I exercise myself unto godliness. So we are in that sense. We're kind of like God's gym. That's how people get spiritually fit. 
They learn things that they need to know. You know, when you walk into it, if you've never been to a gym in your life, and you walk into a, a made like 24-hour fit, and you go up to the second floor, and you look at all these machines, you're like, you're totally like, you have no idea what to do with that piece of equipment. You look at it, do I sit on it? Do I stand on it? Do I wave to it? What do I do? Will I somehow get thinner if I'm just near it? No, you have to use it, right? And you need to use it properly, or you can hurt yourself. God's Word is like that. People can take out the Bible and beat people half to death with it. Even though they've spoken the truth, they can absolutely slaughter them with legalism. So you need to know how to use the Word of God properly. You need to measure those things. You need to season them. Scripture says of itself, you need to be seasoned, sprinkled liberally with dab to give it its best flavor with grace. Amen? God's unmerited. We need to season everything with grace. We can even season God's judgment. We can season His wrath with grace. He doesn't want you to go through that, so I tell you about the grace of God. So we work those things out. But here especially at the end in the book of Revelation, and especially these last couple of chapters, this is a travel agency. And we're telling people about the best vacation that you could ever go on. Because here's what happens on a regular vacation. You work hard all year, you save up what little money you can from your budget, and then you fund that vacation, and it lasts for like a week, 10 days, maybe if you're really fortunate, a couple of weeks, and then you have to come right back to work. Right? And you know how it is when you're first, go- you've got to do all the work ahead of time so you can be gone for those two weeks, so the, the two weeks prior to it is like a living hell on earth. Because you're like trying to do two weeks worth, week of work, worth of work in one week, and you're totally stressed out. And so you get in the car, and you're on your, and you're arguing with your spouse, and you want to strangle your children. And, and it takes the first five days of the trip for you to even unwind to where you can even enjoy part of it. And then towards the end, you start having, I'm going home. I got to go. Oh, I hate this. You know. And, and so now you're, now you're on the downward spiral of the back to work thing. Wouldn't it be great to go and never come back? Amen? That's the travel brochure. Notice it doesn't say, well, you're going to be there for a week and then you've got to come home. This is the glory of God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And the joy of the Lord and the peace of the Lord. And no more sickness and no more pain and no more dying. And all of the glorious things that God wants to do with us for eternity. That's like you're taking out the brochure. Yeah, I'm going to go there for 10,000 years, and I'm going to go there for 8,000. Oh, I want to go there for 14,000 years. You know, I don't know how long you get to go. You know, time will cease to be relevant, I think. But I know this. There's going to be no coming back to this. No matter how good it is for you, there is better. And you get to go forever. And you've done all the work you're ever going to do while you're here. And that's a grace vacation. So we have that travel brochure in our hands right now. This new heaven and new earth, it's completely new. And as we work through this, I think we can get this pretty quickly. What, what happens here is, is God doesn't, in, in the millennial reign... He refurbishes what's already here. 
In other words, he takes this earth and makes it back into what he intended. So he takes plants, animals, all it, everything that we have now during the millennial reign of Christ, he reworks the way it is. Cleans it all up, gets rid of all the pollution, the smog, all that stuff. And he makes the earth wonderful for his presence while we're here. But then when we get to chapter 2, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. This is, this is like, this is, not a total, this is not a makeover. This isn't like a home improvement show. This is, I'm making a whole new one out of stuff that we don't even know today. So when people say, well, you know, I don't think, you won't even, you, you have no way to even understand it in that sense. It's going to be so glorious because it's going to be the glory of the Lord that does it. Let me explain this to you. And you need to understand where the rest of these things come from. They come from the book of Isaiah as a general rule, specifically Isaiah 65 and 66. Also there in 2 Peter. So you can kind of put your finger there in the end of the book of Revelation. And if you want, turn to Isaiah 65. We'll get there in a moment. Because in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He uses a very special Hebrew word there. It's the Hebrew word bara. And bara means to create from nothing. Nothing was there, and God makes something that is not there. He's not using two other words, which can also be said to be creative or created. He does not use asa. He does not use yashar. He, he doesn't use those two words because those words are the things that like if you take something someone else has and you create something with it, like if you take paper and ink and write a letter, you created that letter because the words that are on that page were not there before, came from your mind, you created it. But you did not bara that letter because the paper was already here and the ink was already here the word that's used in isaiah 65 which is about the new heavens and new earth and now you can see this verse 17 isaiah 65 for behold i create a new heavens and a new earth he's talking about the same time this is 800 years before jesus left this earth almost the former thing shall not be remembered nor ever come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create a new Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Three times the prophet Isaiah, the same word that's in Genesis 1, the Hebrew word bara. God will create from nothing the new heaven and the new earth. Super important you get that. If you don't know your Old Testament, you won't know that. Because the Greek word that's used is one that's general for creation. But this tells us what he's getting at. Isaiah 66, one more chapter. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make, same word, shall remain before me, says the Lord, and so shall all your descendants and you remain. So when God makes a new heaven and a new earth, He's not going to make it out of the old stuff. 
God was once approached by a scientist. I said, listen, God, you know, we, we decided that we don't need you anymore. We can make anything. You know, we, we, can, we have artificial intelligence. We can clone people, transplant organs. I mean, we got computers that are faster, than, and we can think faster than you could ever imagine. So we really don't need you. God said, well, you don't need me, huh? Okay, well, we'll see about that. How about we do a little contest? The first thing I made on this earth that you can remember was a man. Why don't we try making a man? I'll make a man and you make a man. And so the scientist says, great, we'll make a man. Scientist goes out in the field, sets up his little table, brings his instruments over, reaches down to scoop up some dirt, and God says, oh, no, you make your own dirt. You get it? You see, to bara takes what isn't there and says, okay, I'm going to make something that ain't there. He, he wanted to yashtar. He wanted to say, well, I got some dirt, and I'll use this dirt right here. No, 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 no. It's a new heaven and a new earth from nothing. In Latin, ex nilo, out of nothing comes these glorious things. He's speaking of a new heaven. And when he speaks of heaven, I think it's important for us to understand what that is as well, because people often make it one of the three things that are mentioned in Scripture. And there are three places that is described as heaven within your Bibles. They're all very important. You should know them. One is just earth's atmosphere. That's the place that, you know, birds fly around and the clouds are and all those kind of things. That's called heaven. There's outer space. That's the place that all the planets and galaxies and black holes and everything else exists in. That's that thing that the scientist thinks about 13.7 billion light years wide. That's where everything that we know of exists according to science. And by the way, it's about 97.8% empty. So when you look out at the stars, it looks like it's full of stars, but most of it is nothing more than space. That's called heaven. There's a third place, and that's the dwelling place of God. And so in this passage, again, we turn to the original language. The original language seems to be indicating, because it uses the the word uranos, which in the Greek means all three. It means heaven of any kind. So God is going to remake the whole universe. Everything. Now, he did a pretty good job on the first one. I'm kind of looking out there in the night sky, and when I'm up in the high Sierras, and I'm, I'm watching the satellites go by, and the galaxies spin, and you, you look at the Milky Way and the edge of our galaxy, and you're like, wow, that is awesome. So if he's going to make a new one that's better than the one that we're currently in, I'm pretty excited about seeing what it's going to look like. Paul had a vision being caught up into that third heaven. Found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 through 4. It says there, I know a man in Christ. He didn't want to name his own name. I know a man in Christ, me. Whether in the body, I do not know. Whether out of the body, I do not know. He wasn't sure that he wasn't dreaming. He's not quite, he's like, I went somewhere. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. In other words, Paul got a little kind of mini view of the rapture. He got taken up to the third. That's where God dwells. Now, he could not have seen God because it would have killed him, but he was given a picture 
of that third heaven. And notice what he says about it. Whether in the body, out of the body, I do not know. God knows. But I was caught up into paradise, and I heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. In other words, the heavenly sound alone was more than Paul could handle. So I don't know what this new heaven and this new earth is going to be like exactly, but I know this, it's going to blow our minds. There'll be a new atmosphere. It says no more sea, so I'm kind of thinking, you know, you've got to do something for me here, God, no more Hawaiian islands. I don't know how that works, but he'll figure it out, I'm sure. He's, he's got it under control. We're not going to go, oh, I can't believe he didn't create that. Right now, we live in a world that's about 75% water. I don't even know if we're going to even need water. So I'm sure the people who own Avion right now are really bummed. Because no more of that stuff that costs more than gasoline are they going to be able to sell you. And they're going to use gold for paving. We'll find out next week. So. So if you're worried about that, don't. You see, what will it be like? I know 1 Peter chapter 1 gives us just a little bit of a glimpse. 1 Peter chapter 1 says there in verse 3, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, Anybody tired of painting your house? Glory and hallelujah. It's like here in the South Bay. I mean, you get, if you have lived in your house for three weeks, you've got to tent it for termites, right? It's like we got stuff here I didn't even know existed on earth. It's like, it's like cursed bugs. And it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, there are things that we are not going to know. They're going to be revealed in the last days. God kind of keeps us thinking, keeps us wondering, keeps us hoping. I like that. I like surprises. It's one of the reasons I enjoy being out in God's creation so much. I go places I've never been. Everything's an adventure. Every corner in the trail could be someplace just amazing. Every step you take can be to some place you've never been before. That's why the, I, I was born the wrong time. I was supposed to be an explorer, I think. It's like, oh, I've been one of those people, oh, it's an ocean, but there's something on the other side of it. Praise the Lord. He says, a new Jerusalem, too, and I love this. Notice the verses that, that now continue from all of this. And then I, John saw that holy city, the new Jerusalem, and he, he speaks to this tabernacle that's going to be with God. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us in verse 10 that Abraham waited by faith for a city. Check it out. Verse 10, Hebrews 11. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was waiting for the same city that we're waiting for. One that God's going to make. This new Jerusalem that's going to come down out of heaven. And we'll look at this incredible city next week. I think Jesus was actually alluding to it in John chapter 14. A passage that we all look at and we go, man, he's building the house for me. That's true. But that mansion ultimately is going to be inside the new Jerusalem. 
you read that passage, the first six verses there of John chapter 14, you'll see it. He says, look, I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come and bring you there. We're going to have new bodies suited for that new space. And Jesus says, hey, get this, and the way you know. And then he tells, tells us all what the way is. That he was the way and the truth and the life. That's the context of John chapter 14. That's why it's so important to keep it in context. So here, Thomas asked this question. Well, we don't know where we're going. Oh, yes, you do. Because you know the way. Me. To that new mansion. He's the key. I believe it's the, the heart of what David said there in Psalm 16. Show me that path of life. Jesus is the path of life. He is the way, the path of life. For in your presence is fullness of joy. You take away all the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and death, take that out of existence, and you make a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. You got J-O-Y, amen? That would be a pretty joyous place. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 reminds us of this, Beloved, now we are the children of God. Please read that the way it's intended. We are the children of God. It's a statement. It's telling us who we are. And it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. In other words, right now we think in human terms. We see this world through human eyes. We understand with human minds. But one day... We're going to have bodies suited for a new heaven and a new earth. Where in the fullness of the Lord's joy is our everyday reality. No more ups and downs, just ups. It's not an up followed by a crash into the valley of despair. It's going to be the fullness of joy. He says, look, but when we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see him as he is. Man, I can't wait to see Jesus as he is. I've got little glimpses. Everyone, you probably have all had the experience with the Lord. Just little things. When God shows you something about his character, you're reading a passage and it just jumps off the page at you. And you're going, yes! Now imagine that your everyday existence is like that. Every moment of every day is yes. Thank you, Lord. The fullness of joy, your glory is everywhere. Oh, well, I've got to go pay bills. I know everybody likes to do that, right? You, you just can't wait to see how long your labor will, will last when you start di dispensing it to other people. I tell you this, there's no jobs in heaven. No one's got to be more... Well, got to go to work, honey. <laughs> it's going to be a vacay, man. We're going to be awesome. No more sadness. You know, sometimes people will have a tough time imagining, and I, I want you to notice there in verse 4, it says the former things have passed away. And, and the language that's used there, right now, no matter how hard we try, you can erase the effects of things by, you know, washing over it, but you can't totally erase your mind. 
You can't totally erase the emotional damage that's been done in your life. You can't totally erase the memory of the things that have happened to you throughout time, good and bad. And praise God for the good. But those bad things, sometimes they stay with us for our whole lives, don't they? They they have me. I have things in my life that to this day, being a 60-year-old man, that when I think of them, they still hurt. I remember vividly in Technicolor the night that my parents said they were done. We're divorcing. I remember what my mother said to me that night. I will never forget it as long as I'm here. Praise God, when I get there, the former things will pass away. Never more to be brought to memory. So for those of you that think you're going to get to heaven and you're going to have all the pain of all of the people that you've ever known that did not receive the Lord, that's simply not true. Because you could not possibly have the fullness of joy while having that information. God will erase those things. You have it now so that God can use it. You'll have no reason to have it then. And so God will take it away. So if you've ever wondered when you're going to get rid of all those thoughts, when you get to heaven. Makes us long for heaven. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. All that knowledge that was necessary for here, you will not need those things. And Isaiah 65, the Old Testament A picture of the new heaven and new earth says the same thing in verse 17. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered nor even come to mind. Do you remember when the Jewish people restored the city of Jerusalem during Nehemiah's time? And there were those with them that remembered the glory of the former temple. And they wept. Because the new temple was kind of a low-budget gig. And they were remembering the old temple. Well, in a sense, there'll be people that, you know, might think, well, I had a really nice house and I, you know, I had a good life while I was here. You're not going to remember the old temple. You're not going to be able to dredge that up in your memory banks. Behold, all things will be new, including your mind fully. Praise God and hallelujah. Amen? glory. You see, God's Word is true. You can trust it. You see, John is struck dumb by all this information, as verse 5 reminds us. And because of that, God gives us new information. These words are faithful. These words are true. You can trust them. And he goes on to say, as John writes these things down, look, it's done. And there's two verses in the book of Revelation. We've already seen one. As, as we looked originally back in chapter 16, you remember that, that the wrath of God was done there. God was done doing the destructive things. It's like, look, I, I, I'm finishing this up at the battle of Armageddon, but he had yet to finalize judgment. That's what's coming, and that's what's really pointed to. And it says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things in verse 7. And I will be his God and he will be my son. 
And so again, it's another, it's a final, it's that invitation. It's like, look, receive Christ now. Don't put it off. What's done is done. And so by the time we get to the end of these eight verses we have in front of us tonight, you remember in chapter 16, the seventh angel poured out that bowl. Can you imagine that that angel gets the opportunity to then see people receive the glory as well? That's God. That's how He works. What a contrast. Psalm 42 reminds us, David writing there, he says, look, as, as, as the deer pants after the water brooks, and so my soul pants after you, my, my soul thirsts for the living God. You, you see, we should be hungry for the fullness of God and thirsty for the fullness of God and desiring the fullness of God. You know, our world offers all kinds of alternatives to the fullness of God. That's why people take drugs. That's why people get into sexual relationships that they're, they're not with married, they're not to their spouse. That's why people steal. That's why people murder one another. They're searching for something to fill that void that God has placed there. We're supposed to be hungering and thirsting for His righteousness. And instead of hungering and thirsting for His righteousness, Satan says, here, hunger and thirst, this will do just as well. And it doesn't. And so God says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Because it's going to be done. You're going to have to choose. One day there will be no more choosing available to us. And so you can choose now and receive eternal life. Or you can try and put that off and substitute something for the glory of God. And it'll never work. No home, no job, no car, no relationship, no drug, no amount of alcohol. Nothing can take the place of Jesus. Nothing can. God made you that way. He has left you with a hole in your heart that can only be filled with Him. Now you can try and stuff all kinds of things into it. And people do. And it should not shock us. Nor should we be judgmental to what they stuff in there. Because without His grace, none of us will see God. Amen? None of us will. But it is that grace that points us towards what we have later. Because we don't get it all figured out while we're here. Something that will become very evident as we study the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul did not have it all figured out. He still had some issues. But sin's grip will finally be over. Done. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That's how you do it. That second birth is how you overcome the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. Notice what it says there, and if you haven't ever read those, if you don't have them underlined, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I am saved by grace through faith, and that faith is a gift that God gave me. That's what overcomes. A program can't help you overcome. 
It might help you through some of the details. It might get you through some dark spots. It may give you some temporary comfort, but a program cannot overcome the world. That's why people carry coins. I have a brother-in-law that's carried a coin in his pocket for nearly 30 years. And I'm not bashing a 12-step program. I'm simply saying that if you're looking to a 12-step program to solve an eternal problem, you're going to come up short. If you're looking for a relationship to solve an eternal problem, you will come up short. No amount of alcohol stuck in your mouth or drugs stuck in your veins will leave you filled and satisfied. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ. So if you want to overcome, there's only one way to do it. And that's by faith. It's to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Incredible story in, in Dwight Moody's life, D.L. Moody. He, he was actually in Chicago during the Chicago fire. You know, Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern, started the you know, city basically burned to the ground. D.L. Moody's home burned down in that. He went back to survey uh, the damage that was done to his home. And a guy walked up to him and said, oh, you must be just devastated. You've lost everything. He says, no, I haven't. The best is yet to come. He said, I haven't lost everything. I've only lost a few things. I will one day inherit all things. The best is yet to come. So when you think of this passage, it should encourage us. And it should steer us away from this second death. We covered this. Look, you can be born once and die twice. Or you can be born twice and die once. The choice is yours. You can have your name in the book of life alone and, and never receive your name and, and have it written into the Lamb's book of life. And then when you get there, Jesus said, well, unfortunately, I have to blot your name out of the book of life because you're not in the Lamb's book of life. So you can be in the two books and be okay, or you can be in the one book and then have that one erased. That's the choice. And I don't want to complicate it. It's that simple. That's why Jesus said there's a way that seems right. That's why there are two roads. That's why there's two gates. You get to choose which one you want to go through. And so he says, so if you want to be a, a coward about it, if you're afraid of what your friends will think, you see, if you confess me before men, then I will confess you before my Father. You see, I believe there's a reason that at this late stage in God's plan, the Lord Jesus tells John, hey, write this, but the cowardly. He lists all the things that we think, well, yeah, of course, murderers aren't going. Oh, praise God, there's going to be a bunch of murderers in heaven. Amen? You know why I say that? Because murderers can be redeemed. And so can adulterers and drug addicts and thieves and liars, and cowardly people. Bitter people, angry people, hateful people, people who are so full of themselves there's no room for God. They can be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's the message of grace, isn't it? 
There's grace for the homosexual. There's grace for the person who's, who can't tell the truth to save their soul. There's grace for the repentant sinner of every flavor. And we need to remember that. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 says, But God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love wherein He loved us, has made us alive in Christ. For by grace you've been saved. True faith and that, not of yourself. It's a gift. You see, that second death will be way worse than the first death. Because that second death will be a spiritual death. And you don't want to participate in the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be there. You don't want anybody you know to be there. You see, that's that other side of the grace coin. There is another side of the grace coin. God's grace is rich. It's free. But it's not cheap and it's not tawdry. It is absolutely free. But you have to ask for it. You can't be a coward. You see, those who practice sin are saying, I don't want God's grace. That's why it's so important that we live lives that are pleasing to God. Notice I didn't say perfect. I said lives that are pleasing to God. In other words, I care about my place in God's kingdom. And I want to receive His grace. And I want His mercy. I don't practice those things. I, I, I look at Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, and I just look at those passages and I go, man, I don't want to be like that. It is to that person that Psalm 103 applies. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. Anybody ready for that day when you can't dredge up your own sin and God already doesn't remember it anymore? Amen? Because we're our own worst enemy, aren't we? Anybody else ever beat yourself up with what you've done in your life? Oh, I've done that. The enemies come in just, well, you know what kind of person you used to be. Yes, I do know what kind of person I used to be. That's why it's grace and not works that saved me. Praise the Lord. Isaiah 43, For I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, for my own sake, I will not remember your sins. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, I hope your travel plans are set. I do. I hope your travel plans are set. Because if they are, what you're reading right now is the brochure. It's, you're, you're like, yeah, I get that, and I get, I get some of that, and I get some of that. I get the joy of the Lord forever and he's not going to remember my sins and neither am I and no more pain and no more sorrow and this wretched earth that's so messed up and jacked up and smogged up going to get a new one of those like yes sign me up your registration card's filled out it's called the Lamb's Book of Life and it's in heaven and he never loses a name He's not going to take your down payments and say, well, you know, you couldn't quite come up with enough of it on your own, so sorry. You're out. If you sign up, he'll show up.
He'll make good on it. His word is true. Make sure you have those travel plans done. You see, that's why Isaiah was so understanding of this. Though my sins be like scarlet, they'll be made white as snow. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. The blood of Christ can cleanse you right here, right now. I'll bring the worship team back up. I just simply want to say, look, maybe, maybe you are here tonight and you're uncertain. You don't know. Maybe you've been going to church your whole life and you don't know. Well, you need to know if your travel plans are set. That's an easy thing to do. It's to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you'll be saved. I'm going to have some of the pastors come forward. And we're going to play one worship song.